Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. If you didn't know, tonight's topic is around this question. How can I, as a sent ambassador for the kingdom of God, as a missionary sent by Jesus himself, how can I actually effectively lead people to Christ during this cultural moment, in this day and age? It's getting harder and harder. Would anybody agree with that? I think it's getting harder and harder. Paul talks about preaching the word in season and out of season. It kind of feels out of season a little bit. It's, it's, it's a difficult time to lead people to a relationship with Jesus. And so for that, we are so privileged. I'm so thankful to have Pastor Chan Kilgore with us tonight. Would you give it up for him as he comes up to share the word? Uh, Chan is the director of church planting at Spanish River, and I uh, got introduced to Chan through Casey Cleveland, who preached at our church on Sunday, and uh, got to have coffee with him last year. He's a gentleman that God has used to plant a church, now training men to plant churches, so me, as a ripe newborn church planner. It was really valuable to be able to just listen to him and glean some wisdom, and I'm so excited for what God's going to share through him tonight. Um, I'd like to just pray, if I could, for you and the time together. Would you bow your heads with me? Uh, Father, thanks again for this time to be here, Lord, to center our minds and our lives around you, and, and to center ourselves around the most important thing about you, God, and it's what you've done You've displayed who you are through sending your son Jesus on a rescue mission to bring us back to you. And in doing so, you also have sent us out on that rescue mission to tell the whole world about how good you are, how loving you are, and how much of a savior you are. And so we ask tonight that you would equip us through your servant Chan, Lord, to be effective in leading people to you. That's why we're here. We ask that you would send your spirit. You would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. Man, what an honor to be here tonight. Uh, I think it's, uh, I'm really, really happy to be here tonight uh, for many reasons. One is because my in-laws are in town, and so, <laughs> I'm kidding. I love, I love my in-laws. My father-in-law actually tells me that I'm his favorite son-in-law, which primarily the reason is is because he only has one daughter, and I married her. And so I have great in-laws, but I'm really glad to be here tonight. I'm, I'm fascinated that you guys would come out on a Thursday night. Um, and there's, there's, what that communicates to me is there's incredible hunger uh, to see uh, the gospel uh, transform South Florida. Uh, and so, and for you to be a part of it, God could use you in an incredible way. Uh, I want to begin with my story for a moment. Um, the... My parents came to Christ when I was a kid, and uh, they came to Christ in a Baptist church by an incredible pastor who was their neighbor, and he just shared the gospel with them. And that pastor left that church, went on to uh, Memphis to pastor another church, became the president of Southern Baptist Convention, a pretty phenomenal pastor, and uh, um, he was instrumental in bringing my, my parents to Christ. Growing up in that church, there was a series of pastors uh, that were very fundamentalist, very legalistic, very moralistic, and I've never really been good at pretending. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, but pretending is exhausting. Pretending to get people to accept you is incredibly emotionally exhausting, and so um, 
Growing up, my parents used to every summer send me away. Uh, looking back on how difficult a kid I was, it totally makes sense now. And one summer, my summer after my sophomore year in high school, they sent me to uh, Beit Jala, Israel, which is a little Palestinian town about three miles outside of Bethlehem, to work in a Palestinian orphanage. And, uh, and so while I was there, and I just kind of came in clash with all these world religions that are there in Jerusalem and, uh, and began to wrestle for the first time what it meant uh, to really be a follower of Jesus Christ. And my whole perception of that was uh, do more, be better, try harder, you know, fake it till you make it almost kind of thing. And so um, I did, I wrote a postcard from Bethlehem to my parents and it's a postcard every parent dreams of getting. Hey, that whole Christian thing, I'm not really into that, but enjoying my summer. And my parents were devastated by that. But that's just where I was at. And then as 21 year old, uh, or 20 year old in college, uh, I tasted of the sweetness and the riches and the beauty uh, of the gospel for the very first time and was captivated by it in such a way that I've never quite got over it. And uh, since about, uh, since 21 years of age, I've been in full-time ministry and my whole life is about lifting up this beautiful multifaceted jewel of the gospel which 2 Corinthians uh, 6.4 tells us is all of who God is revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ. And my whole goal tonight is to, regardless of where you're at, your understanding of the gospel and understanding of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us on the cross, what I hope to do is an ignite in you a deeper passion for Jesus and uh, a, a deeper passion for his mission. And I think one of the real practical ways to do that is show you how you can share the gospel uh, in such a way that you can see it uh, inform and transform people's lives. Someone once said you're defined by your loves. And so I gotta tell you real quick what I love. Uh, number one, I absolutely love Jesus Christ. Um, I know that seems like, well, duh, you're a pastor, you should. But I'll be honest, I've been in ministry long enough not to assume that pastors love Jesus. Um, they may love ministry, they may love church, they may love platform, they may love um, you know, crowds, but uh, man, there's something about just being in love with Jesus is incredibly important. So I love Jesus. Secondly, I love my bride. Uh, we got married in college, and uh, I've been in love with her ever since. I'm going to be uh, 29 years in November. We'll be married, and my wife has blessed me with three daughters, and so I live in this estrogen-rich environment, which I absolutely love. It is an incredible, incredible joy. And so I love my wife, I love my kids, uh, love Jesus, love my wife, love my kids. In fact, loving Jesus helps me love my wife and kids and, and um, empowers me to do that. And then uh, I'll be, I love the local church. I think the local church is the greatest vessel through which uh, the gift of salvation can be poured out to people, the message of salvation can be poured out to people. And so, uh, my very first ministry job was at a First Baptist Nowhere town, and, um, and they hired me, and it was first time I, there I went to youth group. There's like seven or eight church kids there, and I was thinking, I was just a young believer. I wasn't even a Christian for a year, and this church hired me. They were crazy to do that, but they hired me because they were desperate, I guess, 
And we began to do these punk rock shows in actually a warehouse similar to this. It wasn't even much bigger than this. We were having like 70, 80 kids coming out. And we would have these um, just local like punk rock, rock bands play, just giving them a platform. And all these friends would come out to it. And then I'd get up and just share the gospel. And we were seeing just tons of kids coming to Christ and coming to this church. And at one point, the youth ministry uh, was bigger than the actual church was. And uh, one Sunday morning, I got a call from the deacons, and uh, he goes, hey, or one Sunday morning, uh, a deacon came up to me and goes, hey, I want to take you to lunch. And I'm so naive, I'm so young in ministry, thinking, man, you know, he's going to tell me, you're doing a good job reaching lost kids in our town. We're going to bump your budget from $200 a year to $400 a year, you know. And I'm just like, I'm all excited to meet with this deacon. I sat down, we hadn't even ordered yet. And he goes, hey, I want to talk to you about the kind of kids you're reaching. I'm like, isn't that amazing, man? We're reaching kids I don't think this church has ever reached before, and, which is probably the wrong thing to say, but it was right. And, um, and he goes, yeah, that's what I want to talk to you about. Um, I'm not sure we're called to reach those kinds of kids. And I was thinking, I just looked at him, and I was like, I was shocked. And I was like, you mean the kind of kids that are lost and dying and going to hell? We're not called to reach those kinds of kids. And he goes, you need to understand, I spent a lot of money sending my daughter to a private school so they won't be around those kinds of kids. And I, I don't even remember what was said the rest of the lunch, man. I just, just blanked out with anger. I was so angry. And I went home to my wife said, honey, man, I'm quitting ministry. I'm going to go work at Walmart. I mean, that's where we spend most of our paychecks. So that's where I might as well just work there. I, I don't even like Walmart. But I was thinking, this is going to be better than, if this is what church is, then I don't want anything to do with it. And so... Um, that night, in, in all honesty, there was some righteous anger, and there was some sinful anger mixed in there, but a, a lot of righteous anger. God birthed in me a vision, hey, if, 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 why don't you go out and plant the gospel that births into a church that will reach every kind of kid and every kind of adult for the gospel? And so 18 years ago, my wife and I were sent by Spanish River Church here in Boca Raton to Orlando, Florida, and we planted a church called Cross Point Church, and we started with five of us. We had no idea what we were doing. We were just passionate about the gospel. We wanted to see our gospel, the gospel inform and transform our city, uh, to see our city informed and transformed by the power of the gospel for the glory of God. And so what we did begin to do is begin to figure out how do we communicate the most life-changing message in all the world to our city. And we grew from five to eight different congregations running close to 15, 1600 a week in eight different locations around our city. And I, man, when we started growing, started planning locations, uh, I started getting asked to come and do conferences. Hey, how do you grow a church? How do you grow a church? And I was like, I don't know how you grow a church, but I know how to plant the gospel and watch it grow up into a, a vibrant, life-transforming community that impacts the city. And so uh, here's what I want to inspire you to do. Um, I think church planting is awesome. In fact, I'm the director of church planting now at Spanish River Church. But I think what's more important is that we're gospel planters, that we learn how to plant the gospel in uh, the place God has called us and watch that gospel spring up to transform an office, a neighborhood, a workplace, right? And so that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I love. Uh, Mike and Angie Coleman were neighbors. We met when we first moved to Orlando, and my wife was ran into them at a local Publix, and uh, 
Um, and they go, hey, y'all want to go out with us tonight? And my wife's like, sure, where, where do you want to go? And she, he, they go, hey, at Rachel's Strip Club, it's couples night. And, um, <laughs> and my wife's like, um, y'all know my husband is a pastor, right? And the, Mike and Angie were so lost. Their resp Mike's response was, oh, tell your husband to be, bring business cards, right? Uh, the, you know, people there need a gospel. And I'm like, I'm all about being missional, but like, business car, like, I, I, it just, like, that crosses the line for us, and so, but Mike, Mike and Angie, man, just became good friends of ours, but that's where they were spiritually, like, they didn't even know enough about the church, and about the Bible, and about the gospel, and no, it's probably inappropriate to invite your pastor to couples night at the strip club, right, and so that, that's where they were at, and so, we begin to build a relationship with Mike and Angie, and, uh, just it, what, probably a couple of months later, I ran into Mike at the same Publix my wife ran into him at. He goes, hey, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, yeah, let's talk. And he goes, no, no, I, I really need to talk to you. And I'm like, well, let's just grab st Starbucks, coffee at the Starbucks in the morning and talk. And so we ordered our Starbucks. Or I ordered my big tea, black iced tea with lemonade. And um, sat down before we even had a drink. Mike goes, hey, I'm thinking about having an affair with my wife. That moment was huge because Mike shared with me an aspect of his heart, and I'll be honest with you, everything inside of me wanted to thump him with the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Um, but here's the question I want to, if, if you were sitting in my chair with Mike at Starbucks Coffee, and he said that to you, how would you share the gospel with him? How would you share the gospel with him? And so here's what I want to do tonight. I want to help answer that question because we live in a world filled with mics asking questions like that, all right? One of the, there's a worksheet there you can follow along. One of the greatest challenges church faces is training its members to be missionaries within their given culture. Uh, contextualization is learning to understand the story of a certain culture and being able to retell the story of God in such a way that, get this, that it helps people make sense of their own story, the story of their own lives, and be redeemed by it. And so here's what I want to do. I want to I do a little contextualization lesson for you. I hope you'll bear with me on this, but I want you to know the context in which you are bringing the gospel to bear, all right? And so there's this little draw, drawing there. The, um, well, uh, Leslie Newbegin, a famous British missiologist, I love this quote, he says, the deepest motivation for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. Now, there's two powerful things in that statement that he talks about being on mission. Number one, it's to be with Jesus. And um, the... Um, Man, I would love to spend the next hour just talking to you about abiding with Jesus. Because if there isn't an abiding, there isn't ever going to be mission. All right? Now, here's why. Uh, this gospel that someone described as this multifaceted jewel of the gospel is, um, is all of who God is revealed to us in the face of Christ. And as we began to lift up this multifaceted jewel of the gospel and rotate it around and plunge every facet of the gospel, it should cause, it should hijack us 
and re radically reorient our lives towards Christ and his mission. Um, I remember my three daughters, it, they're, it's so interesting. My three daughters are hyper extroverts and I happen to be an introvert. And so it's like being around my girls, it's like they just talk. They like talk, they'll talk over each other. It's like stereo surround sounds, you know, with my girls, there's talking. And we were driving in a car one time and my girls are like just jabbing, jabbing away. And also my middle daughter, um, who's always just had this just natural heart for God and for theology and for the things of God. Very young age, she goes, Dad, who created God? And um, I go, honey, that's a great question. Like, no one created God. God created everything. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Everything that is created was created by him and for him and through him. And he, he, he has existed from eternity past and will always exist into eternity future. And it was absolute silence in the back of my car. And I don't know how it is in your home, but when things get quiet in my home, I get worried. Like when we lived in Orlando, we had a two-story house. If there wasn't noise going on constantly, I would go up to investigate because there's usually trouble. And so I'm looking in the rearview mirror and I could see my three girls trying to wrap their young minds around a God so infinite and so vast that he would have no beginning or no end. And with just about 30, 40 seconds of silence, my daughter breaks the silence and goes, Dad, that blows my mind. And I was like, honey, that's the point, that you would get a view, you would get a vision, a perspective of God that is so great that it would absolutely blow your mind that you would just go, wow, 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 wow. I had an old lady come up to me who came to Christ in my church, and um, she said, uh, Pastor Chan, is heaven going to be one long praise chorus? And I was like, no, Susan, it is going to be far more infinite than that. Like, we are going to, with unveiled faces, see uh, Jesus in all of his glory, and eternity will pass, and we'll still be going, wow, 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 wow. If that is true, then I would argue let's begin now practicing for all of eternity. Let's have a view of God that absolutely blows our mind, that captivates us, that reorients every aspect of our minds and our hearts and our actions towards him and his mission, all right? That's the gospel I'm talking about here. And so let's talk about, uh, so that's what it means to abide. We just have that captivation with Jesus. Now, the second part, it says, be where he is, being on mission with Jesus in the redemptive edge. Now, let me talk to you what I mean by redemptive edge. That's the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of Satan. And, um, and understand clearly, God is sovereign over everything. Uh, there, there is, there is, I came to church, I came to Christ, so it's actually a wildly charismatic church, and so I have this charismatic background that I absolutely love, and, uh, but they taught this dualism in the church, like, like Satan was on this side and God was on this side. And, you know, if we prayed hard enough, then God would get an upper edge on Satan. And it's not a biblical at all because all you have to do is read the book of Job and see that God is sovereign over everything, that God is sovereign. And Satan has usurped his dominion here um, in the present, but he's been defeated. And 
all things will be restored to him. And so, and so the, the, the redemptive edge that we live in is that frontier uh, uh, that I wish I had a whiteboard to describe that. There's a diagram there. And if you put like creation, you know, on the left and present on the right, there would be this arc, this redemptive arc of, um, of, of time throughout history from creation to the present. And on that historical arc, there would be this redemptive arc in which uh, the gospel is expanding in the earth. And throughout church history, if you study church history, there's been an ebb and flow of the movement of the gospel. And so like in the 1950s, that redemptive edge was super wide. So you could drive a Mack truck through it and you could literally drive a school bus through it and people would crowd on that school bus to go to Sunday school. It was that wide. We are living in a time, and Pastor Andrew alluded to this, that that redemptive edge is narrowing. And so, in a sense, we have to become very savvy about how we smuggle the good news of the gospel in our cultural context. And so let me give you a little cultural snapshot of that. Uh, Our culture is rapidly changing. Like, when I was growing up, I used to say something like, Mom, Dad, you don't understand. Things were so different when you were a kid. And to be honest, things weren't that much different when my parents were growing up and I was growing up. Now, I have three daughters. My oldest daughter is 27, my youngest daughter is 20, and my, I mean, my middle daughter is 20, and my youngest daughter is 18. And, um, and we were at Disney World, and we were reading this book called, entitled Marching Off the Map. And I believe the guy's a Christian. It's a sociology book, and he was talking about how uh, Generation X and... Um, and Generation Z and Generation Y are so radically different. And my girls actually span those generations. And my oldest and youngest daughter, we were standing in line. I forget what ride it was at the Animal Kingdom in Disney World, um, waiting for eternity to get on a three-minute ride, which is insanity to me, but people love that. The, um, the, and I was reading this book uh, right off my iPhone, right off my Kindle, and I was just describing the difference between genera- Generation X and Generation Z. And uh, my daughters are like, my, I was reading Generation X, characteristic Generation X, and, um, and my youngest daughter was going, oh, yeah, that's so Abby, that's her to the T. And then I started reading the characteristics of Generation Z, and my oldest daughter was like, oh, yeah, that's so Amber, that's her. And what's crazy is within a single family unit, the generation between my oldest daughter and my youngest daughter is so radically different. And so like when my kids were growing up saying, dad, things are so radically different now that they were right, you know? Things are changing that rapidly. And I, uh, the, the internet has a huge impact on that because the, what the internet has done is made the world flat. So, so like cultural pulses in Tokyo instantaneously, instantaneously hit suburbia um, in uh, Boca Raton, right? Like, when I was a kid, I lived in Southern California and in Cocoa Beach. My dad was a NASA engineer, and so he would work part-time at Edwards Air Force Base when the space shuttle landed. So I would spend summers with my dad, and I'd come back with all this new wardrobe from Southern California. My friends would go, oh, that's cool. Where'd you get that? And after a few summers, I realized, just wait. It'll be here, you know, in about a year or two because cultural trends tend to start in Southern California and slowly move, or in New York, and slowly move to Cocoa Beach, right, to Florida. And I, I learned after a while, just wait, it'll be in style in like two years, right? And, but that doesn't happen anymore. Like whatever's fashionable, you know, 
in Europe instantly or, or uh, Japan or, you know, it's just instantly like K-pop, like it's just like, it's a flat world. Cultural pulses are just like that and transform our kids in a way. Uh, a friend of mine who planted in New York City, a guy named John Tyson, uh, we planted uh, close together. We were friends. And I remember in our early conversations, he would tell me what was coming in culture because things just generated from New York City. Culture generated out of New York City. It tended to generate in cities. But that doesn't happen anymore. The internet has made it. He goes, what's happening in, in Boca Raton is happening in New York simultaneously because they're so uh, connected to the internet. There's a rapid declining church attendance. There's a we live in a highly contested space. And the reason is, is because we live in a highly mobile and highly transient um, uh, city. And so when it comes to like church attendance, there's so much that competes for people's affections and resources and commitments and devotion and, and, and time uh, and money. Um, and then we live in a highly pluralistic um, uh, culture. And it's like, I was sharing the gospel with a friend of mine at our, we, we just moved into a house just right down the street from here, but we live in this apartment complex and we are sharing the, uh, the gospel with some friends of ours we met by the pool. And I was sharing, ironically, his name is Mike too. Uh, Mike and Sam, they were two divorcees living together. And I began to share the gospel and Samantha, as I was sharing Jesus, she was going, oh yeah, Mike, you need that, you need that. I'm thinking, okay, maybe, maybe Sam knows G they're living together, but maybe, you know, she has a church background, she has understanding of the gospel. And so I'm sharing Jesus with him. And he goes, she goes, yeah, yeah, I think that's good. And you'll know what else I do. I do some Buddhist meditation and some, and then she's just pluralistic. Like she will adopt any, any kind of spirituality that uh, she seems that that's really pragmatic for, whatever she thinks is working for. I think we're edging into a time, and we'll definitely see this within our lifetime. I think it's a few years off, but we're going to be in a post-pluralistic culture. Um, and we see hints of that going around. And this is when the redemptive edge is going to get super narrow and super difficult. This is when we will, as a church, start to see persecution when we become uh, post-plural. Uh, we live in a pluralist society which all beliefs are, are accepted. You're like, oh, yeah, you're Muslim, you're Christian, you're Jew. That's cool, you know, all paths lead to God kind of pluralism that exists. But we're starting to see inclinations of a post-pluralistic culture, like if you don't believe as I believe, then you're a redneck hillbilly and you're ostracized, right? You see, you're starting to see that in culture. And so it's kind of a soft totalitarianism that demands you believe this way or we're gonna persecute you. And, um, and you're starting to see that like people lose their businesses over taking a biblical stance on sexuality, right? And uh, it's not gonna just stop there. It's gonna start, may start there, but it won't stop there. And so that's the culture we live in. Uh, let me run through this. Uh, we live in a hyper-comparison world, and this has huge gospel implications. Uh, when I was growing up, my comparison group were maybe a handful of peers or my soccer team growing up, you know, that I compare myself to, and it was usually between like eight and five during the day, and I'd come home, and I'd be disconnected from that peer group, so like my emotions could decompress and recover. Uh, we're living in a day and age where uh, there's a hyper comparison, like there's no break from a peer group. In fact, oftentimes our peer groups are significantly larger uh, than it has ever been before. Naturally, we, we tend to gravitate towards three or four people, maybe, and have a wider group of 12, but with social media, 
um, our kids, you know, I have like 6,000 friends on, you know, on Facebook. I don't, I don't know those people, you know, but I find myself comparison to other pastors and what they're doing. And what that does is damaging. So we're seeing anxiety amplify in our culture and um, um, per, uh, with both boys and girls, but particularly in young girls, because in social media, they're shaping, oh, I should be like this, but they don't realize that it's a Photoshop world. There's there's, uh, you know, filters on that, you know, like, like my wife and I, people always say, oh, you have such a perfect marriage. We always see you out on dates. You know, you're taking pictures of, you know, you and your wife on dates or traveling wherever in the world together. And, and I'm like, yeah, we have a, we have a great marriage. It's not perfect, right? Like we don't tend to Instagram, ah, worst fight ever, you know, like it's just, you, you, you filter all that out so it looks like it's a perfect life, but it's a not perfect life. But for young people and adults alike, it's hugely affecting. So that's the world we live in. So the question is, is how do we minister the gospel in a redemptive edge of culture? Um, the question every church that seriously is engaging in the grand redemptive mission of God ought to be asking is how we bring the gospel to bear in our cultural context. Now, here's, who we, here's how we do it. We must become fluent in the gospel, not just for eternal life, but for everyday life. Much of our, let me, let me critique some of the way we've done evangelism in the past. Oftentimes our evangelism is the gospel for eternal life, but not for everyday life. And I would contend we're living in a time and day where people aren't even thinking about eternity. They're just thinking about making it to the weekend. Like, they're just like, uh, man, a, a mom with a two-year-old yeah, she's not thinking about eternal life. She's thinking about how she's not going to strangle her two-year-old that's driving her nuts. And if you can't share the gospel with a, a mom on how the gospel informs and transforms uh, her parenting a two-year-old, then you're just not going to have an audience, right? But if you can begin to share the gospel with a mom with a two-year-old, say, hey, here's how the gospel informs your parenting, helps orient you, helps you make sense of the struggle you are going on, what's going on with your two-year-old, and here's how the gospel transforms it, then you have an immediate, uh, you know. Uh, like if you go, hey, if you should die today, what would you say to God to let you into heaven? People are like, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just trying to make it, you know, to the end of the month so I can pay my bills, right? And so how does the gospel inform and transform debt or finances? Or, and so you gotta be conversant enough in the gospel to speak. Look on the second page, like, um, how does the gospel inform and transform all of life? Identity, anxiety, which is skyrocketing uh, among millennials and, uh, and Generation Z. I was saying Generation X earlier. I, was, I meant millennials. Someone should have corrected me. 27-year-old is not a Generation X. The, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. The, I'm rebuking you. I don't even know you. The, and, and for my wrong, the, <laughs> oddly enough. Uh, how does the gospel inform and transform addiction? Um, how does it inform and transform marriage? How does it inform and transform singleness or divorce or parenting? Or I remember a, a lady, I had the honor of sharing the gospel with a lady and she was in her uh, early 50s and she realized I've never had kids and I will never have kids. And it wrecked her world. How would the gospel inform and transform that lady's life? She came to Christ because I shared with her explicitly how the gospel could help make sense of her life and give her a sense of identity apart from being a mom. Um, 
aging in retirement, one of the most beautiful conversations I've had with my father as he's a NASA engineer. I mean, he was putting men on, in space and now we've taken his car away from him. And he's rocking his world. So how does the gospel inform and transform aging and retirement? Uh, in South Florida, we need to know how to answer that question. Or how about this? How about sexuality, homosexuality, or sexual fluidity? How would you share the gospel with, um, we had, a, we had a, a single mom live with us and her son's name is Lyric. And he's seven years old now and he dresses like a girl every single day. And so engaging in him was how does the gospel inform and transform the sexual fluidity that he's experiencing in his life is something we need to be able to do. Um, suffering, illness, finances, work, career, success, failure, drivenness, sleep, um, Sabbath day, days off, vacation, hedonism, which is huge in South Florida. Um, how does gospel inform and transform ministry, church planting? These are questions we need to be able to answer if we're going to be able to smuggle the gospel in this redemptive edge in which we live, all right? And so here's how we're going to do it. Let's get real practical. I want you to, we're going to spend about, about two minutes, and what I want you to do is go around the table, tell, tell us your name, you're just around your table, in one line, so there's going to be some work, in one line, tell your table something you are celebrating, and in one line, tell your table something that is frustrating you. Okay, that is stressing you out, that is causing anxiety. Okay, you get it? Okay, do it now. All right. We are story-formed people. Like behind that one sentence of celebration and one sentence of frustration is a story, right? And like if we were here for like the next three hours, we could probably unpack some pretty significant stories just based on those two questions. You see, we are story-formed people because we are created by uh, a God who is an author of a great redemptive story that's been unfolding throughout uh, the history of the world. And, uh, and I think it's fascinating that, that it, God gave us his word, not just simply in a list of propositions that we would have to follow, but it's one story, 66 books with one story, uh, with one thread of a story arching all the way through it. Now, here's why that is important, because story not only forms us, but it can, which there's a typo there, which I did on purpose for you who are OCD about grammar and typos to expose your need of a savior. And so, um, but it says can transform your lives. And so, we need to share the gospel in a way that helps, helps people understand their stories, informs them, but also transforms them. And so I want to give you one aspect of the gospel, all right? And that is what I call the gospel in the air. It's creation, uh, fall, redemption, and restoration. These are four points that intersect with every single one of our stories and every single uh, story of every single person who's ever lived on this planet, all right? Now, people don't use the term creation, fall, redemption, restoration, but as you listen to their stories, you listen to what they celebrate and you listen to their frustrations, what you'll see is that uh, you will see these points of intersection in this story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. For example, like, um, like, uh, they will talk about who they are and what they are meant to be, creation. 
They will talk about what is wrong with them or what is wrong with the world, uh, or somebody or something uh, will be blamed, the fall. Like, so if they're Democrats, it's Trump, Republicans, it's Obama, right? The, um, they will also have a sense of what needs to happen for things to be put right, redemption, and then some sense of the state of affairs that they hope will give them this meaning of satisfaction and restoration. I mean, all of, you could see that in every story. You're like, well, how does restoration play into that? Uh, I, I lived in a city where 60 million people a year poured in that city for one reason. Why? Why do people come to Orlando? 60 million people every year come to Orlando. Yeah, for the happiest place on earth. Why? Because we are hardwired with this redemptive longing for Eden, for the perfect place on earth, for Sabbath rest, for peace. And you see this play out in a million different ways. You see people wanting financial peace, peace of mind, peace in the home, shalom in the home, uh, our perfect paradise. And so people will drop their life savings for three days at Disney World looking for Eden looking for the happiest place on earth. And as great as Disney World is, um, it can't give you what your soul so longs for. Um, uh, here's how I know that. All you have to do is stand at the gates of the Magic Kingdom at closing time, and it's wailing and gnashing of teeth, <laughs> right? It is parents spending 25 bucks on latex and helium to keep their kid from losing his ever-loving mind on the monorail ride back to the parking lot, right? And um, that's what people long for. Like, it, it's this redemptive longing that's hardwired in it. If you listen to people's story, you will hear their creation. So creation is my identity. The fall is my problem, my frustration. Redemption is how I think this could be solved. And restoration is my hope. This is what a perfect life would look like. Now, that's God's story, all right? That's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If you understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you'll understand all of Scripture because it's the same story repeated over and over again uh, throughout Scripture in which it culminates on the cross in which the promised Redeemer, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, is, uh, comes uh, in Jesus Christ, God the Son. And... and becomes the ultimate sacrifice. It's just a bloody story of a promised land, of a broken covenant, of sacrifices needed to be made. And uh, the story repeats itself over and over again because none of the sacrifices could ultimately cover the sin until the perfect sacrifice came in redemption and uh, a promise of ultimate restoration. But there's also a different story playing out. That's Satan's story. In Genesis 3, God's words gets reinterpreted by the serpent as follows. He says, creation, you are meant to be gods, right? You see that story being played out uh, over and over and over and over again in our culture. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the fall is you're held back by God and his insecurities. Um, I remember growing up, I thought, man, if I really, you know, um, gave my life to Christ, I would just have to live this miserable life because I didn't believe in the goodness and the grace of God. Uh, no one ever taught me that true hedonism, true joy is founded reveling in who God is and all of who God is. And only God's spirit can open your eyes to that kind of joy. 
But here on earth, people pursue hedonism like crazy and spend huge amounts of money in pursuit of this fantasy world. This is where virtual reality is becoming, um, uh, is going to absolutely, like the matrix seems so far off. But there is a, 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 a greater, deeper matrix that people are plugging into to find you know, joy. And yet the gospel, God gives us to us there, but Satan has distorted it. Uh, redemption is you can be set free by disobeying God. And then restoration is that ultimately we'll all be gods. Uh, that's Satan's story. Here's our story. In creation, what do you assume the world should be like? What kind of person uh, would you like to be? Uh, who are your heroes? What would have to be in place for you to feel happy? Now, here's the fall. How do you describe your struggles and battles? What do you feel uh, is your most pressing problem? What do you feel you lack? Who or what do you think is responsible for that? Now, here's re your, our redemption story. What do you think will make life better? What provides a sense of escape or release? Who or what will deliver their hopes? What are their functional saviors? Now, every single one of us are in pursuit of a savior. Uh, it's interesting, John the Baptist, when he was in prison, about ready to be beheaded by Herod, um, he, he asked his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the savior or should we look for someone else? And the implications are is we're all looking for a savior. We're all looking for a savior. And you see that played out in people's lives in a million different ways. If I could just get to this income bracket or this position or this home on, you know, you, you see this cultural here in Boca particularly, there's somewhat of like, like uh, it, it runs up in South Florida. Boca may be a little exception to this, but like, like you see this culture between federal and I-95, their dream is to get out west. And people out west, their dream is to get out east of federal, you know, between the ocean and federal, right? And because, th and there's this struggle to seek, like if I could just get in the right zip code or, you know, the, the right street adjust, then that would be heaven on earth. Um, and we all are pursuing saviors. That shapes our stories. And you listen to someone's stories, and you could see their false saviors that they pursue and, um, and how that's ultimately destroying them, okay? There's actually a lot to, and so, uh, despite the rejection of God's word and rule, in God's grace, the Bible's story becomes this, creation. We are made in God's image to reflect his glory, to love God, and to love others. The fall, we have rebelled against God's rule, but our self-rule leads to conflict, slavery, and judgment. Redemption. God restores his rule by sending his son and graciously enabling us to live under his rule by paying the price of our judgment on the cross. And then restoration is God will recreate this broken world when Jesus returns. Um, now, there's a lot of actual ways you could tell this story. And while there's clearly some wrong ways, um, you can divine creation, fall, and redemption, and restoration in a variety of biblical ways that will connect directly to the story of the person you're sharing the gospel with. And so, Consider this, uh, so you can read that illustration, but let me take you back to Mike in Starbucks, right? He says, Jan, I'm thinking about having an affair on Angie. And everything inside of me is going, you're an idiot. You're breaking the Ten Commandments and thump the Bible in his head, you know? Start with sin, right? And um, I didn't start there. I didn't even start with God's story. I wanted to start with his story. Because I wanted to hear his story in such a way that I could retell God's story um, so that God's story could inform, help orient him to his story, and then ultimately 
redeem, transform his story. And so I go, Mike, why do you want to have a fair on Angie? He goes, I don't know. There's this girl that works for me. Man, that makes me feel so respected. It feels so special. I'm like, I, I get that. Now, I'm a man. I, I, I want respect. I get that. And I go, well, did Angie ever respect you? And he goes, yeah, sure, she respected me. And I mean, that's why I married her, because she, gave, she made me feel good about myself. And I go, well, how long did that last? I don't know, a year or two. I mean, it's waned off significantly in the last few years. And I go, I get that. I understand that. And I said, so, and having an affair with this girl that works for you, you think that will give you the respect that your heart so longs for? And he goes, yeah, it does. It does. And I go, I get that. But let me ask you, how much will it costs you to have an affair. And he goes, well, I really haven't thought about that. And I go, well, let's, let's just play it out. Let's do a cost-benefit analysis right here, right here at Starbucks over our coffee. I go, you've been married for Angie for seven years. Um, you're willing to sacrifice seven years of your life, of your marriage with her, and, and devas and wound your wife. He goes, I, I don't know, I never really thought about it. I was like, let's just keep thinking about it. Are you willing to sacrifice your relationship with your kids? Because they will be bitter at you for betraying their mom. And he goes, ah, I didn't think about that. And I go, okay, let's just play it out. Like, like will this lady give you more respect than Angie or less? He goes, I, I don't know, I guess there's no guarantee. I go, here's Mike, here's what you're, going, you're about ready to do. You're about ready and then I ask him, hey, are you willing to sacrifice your job because she's a subordinate? You know, and you could lose your job over this. He goes, wow, I never thought of it that way. And I go, listen, Mike, here's what you're about ready to do. You're about ready to sacrifice everything for a false savior who up front may deliver, but at the end will require you to sacrifice everything. And he goes, I definitely have never thought of it that way. And I'm like, can I introduce you to a savior that up front sacrificed everything so that you could have life and life to its fullest, that your identity could be rooted in him and be secure in him regardless of how Angie treats you or doesn't treat you? And he goes, I'm interested. And I sat there and basically retold his story, his longing for Eden, for respect, and what he was willing to do to sacrifice that for that and showed him how Jesus could be that savior that could ultimately, that could root his identity in, that would actually free him to love his wife more deeply because if his identity was rooted in Christ and not in Angie, whether Angie respected him or not, she would, he would be able to love Angie when she was least able to love him, right? And so that has the gospel transforms his marriage. Over a series of conversations after that, Mike came to Christ and uh, went to our church. It still goes to our church to this day up in Orlando. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.